Up until this point in Romans, we're, we're kind of taking a parachute into the middle of Romans, getting to the middle of an argument that Paul is uh, addressing the, Roman, the Christians in Rome with. To this point, he has already established certain things. He's already said some things that they need to hear. And all of his arguments rest on these assumptions that he has about reality and this world. Some of the general ideas in this letter leading up to chapter 6 are the fact that God has made all things. That God has made promises that he would send a greater David to satisfy the demands of the law. That All of humanity is under the wrath and curse of God. And what we do as humans is we take the things of God and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. All mankind is consigned to wickedness and under God's judgment and curse. But then God does something in chapter 3. He puts forward for us the satisfaction For our sins, the payment that our sins demand through the person and the work of Christ. All of humanity is wicked, and those who place their hope and trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved from the wrath of God. And the only way that a man or woman stands guiltless before God is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are some of the assumptions or, and the assumptions that Paul makes are actually not that subtle. They're very explicit throughout the entire letter of, uh, to the Romans. But all of these assumptions pave the way for the arguments that he is making, even as we get into chapter 6, so that we understand who we are in Christ. Every believer needs to understand who they are in Christ. It's kind of like when you're working at a store or you're working for a company and you are totally ignorant of the human uh, resources, the, the, the resources that you have, the employee benefits that you have as an employee. You didn't know that you had paid vacation until you asked someone in the HR department. You didn't know that you had paid time away or that you can actually take sick pay. And most Christians find themselves struggling against sin. And one of the reasons why they struggle against sin so much is not just because it's there and it's indwelling and it's remaining. But part of it is because they don't know that they have been transferred out of the kingdom and the dominion and the jurisdiction of sin into the kingdom of Christ. And so... Paul spends all of chapter 5 dealing with this. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the assumption is that at one point in time, before you came to Christ, you were at war with God, and there was no peace. In fact, 7 billion people that live on this planet right now who don't know the Lord are currently in a state of active hostility and rebellion against God. But thanks be to God, for those of us who have come to know Christ, there is now peace. 
And then as he goes through chapter 5, again, this is making our way into chapter 6. As he goes through chapter 5, he says that there are only two races in this world. We're not talking necessarily about ethnicity, but we are talking about two races that currently exist. Those who come from the line of Adam and those who come from Christ. Those who come from the line of Adam are all consigned to obey the law. That is, their, that is what they live to do. They are supposed to obey the, the law and do all that it commands. But guess what? They can't do it, so they are under the wrath and curse of God. It's hard to see this when you're looking at your friend who doesn't know the Lord in the eye to think in these terms. But this is the reality that Paul's arguments rest on, that the scripture teaches us. Those who are no longer in Adam now find themselves in a position where they are united to Christ. And so the sixth chapter then deals with the life of the Christian. In fact, it could probably be broken up into two parts, 1 through 14, which is what we'll get to today, and verses 15 to the end, where it deals with all of this deals with how then shall we live as believers It deals with the topic of holiness, which is us being set apart for God, by God, to live in the presence of God forever. The life of the Christian is a new life. Everything changes. Everything. You filter the world through the lens of Christ. Yesterday, or on Friday, Apple released the new headset, the Apple Vision Pro, where you can see all of reality through virtual reality and you can, you can tell the difference between what's real and what's from your phone. But the fact is, is that the reality that the scripture presents us with is that we look through the lens of Christ, through the, through the lens of scripture to see everything, not a virtual reality headset. You are now free from sin To live in a way that you weren't able to do when you were under the curse of God. So the question is, what is sin? For those of us who know our catechism, our catechism will tell us that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But to put more meat on the bones, so to speak, My attempt at a definition of sin is this. Sin is the power of an actively personal hostility toward God in us, which is against all that he is, all that he loves, praising all that he hates for the destruction of all that is his, so that every trace and memory of God is both disgraced and destroyed. And the key words in that definition is that it is a personal, active hostility towards God. Why do we say this? The reason why I say this is because this is the realm that we have been transferred out of into union with Christ. And when the scripture speaks of the sin that remains in us, this is what the scripture is talking about. So, Paul deals with the life of the Christian 
now that we have been given new life. And in our text this morning, as we go through these 14 verses, we're not going to get into all of the nuances and all of the details of this text that would make way for several more sermons. And we'd probably be here all day, if not all week or all year. But what Paul is dealing with is the life of a Christian. And so what we'll look at this morning is we'll look at it just in three segments. Um, We'll look at it under the banner of the life of a Christian. Living in freedom from sin, verses 1 through 4. Living in union with Christ, verses 5 through 11. And then finally, we'll look at living in service to God. Again, we'll briefly go through these, but the idea is this is the life of a believer. This is the life. This is your life. And since Jesus has destroyed the power of sin, we, you and I now have the ability to truly live for him. And so let's look at these first couple of verses or these first four verses and look at living in freedom from sin. What does Paul say? He asks about four questions, four rhetorical questions, questions that he's not necessarily expecting a response letter, but he asks these questions. What shall we say then in response to everything that I've just said in chapter five? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he very, very emphatically says, certainly not. Or if you want to put a more uh, common everyday translation to it, it's you better not even think about it. You better not even think about it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? And the idea that Paul is addressing is this idea that now that we have come to faith in Christ, now that we are free from the law of sin and death, now that we have been set free from sin and Satan and the guilt and the curse of sin, if God is gracious towards us, why then should we not continue to sin just to magnify the grace of God? There are certain preachers in our day, in our context, and this is nothing new in history, that will confess their sins publicly from the pulpit in order to magnify the grace of God. And what happens is, is that the entire congregation is now complicit in acknowledging the fact that the preacher is sinning, is sinning, is sinning, and everyone goes home quietly and says, okay, well, at least we know the the preacher's a sinner. But there's no condemnation for the sin. There's no idea of this repentance. The language that comes out of the preacher's mouth is, I'm just a broken sinner just like you are, so let's go home and let's sing together and eat together. And Paul is saying, no, that's lawlessness. We don't do that. He's saying, shall we sin? Shall we continue to walk in sin, living in the lifestyle that brought us under sin and condemnation, that brought us under the righteous judgment of God in order to show the the grace, the unmerited favor that God shows towards sinners. Because after all, grace can only come in the context of sin. So the answer to the question that Paul has is certainly not. You better not even think about it. And then he asks, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? 
Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? The idea behind verses 3 and 4 regarding baptism is not necessarily us coming to the front to get baptized by the minister, even though it involves that. It's not even telling us how we should get baptized. But the idea is, at the very foundational level that Paul is getting at, he is getting at the fact that we are personally united to Christ. In fact, he says that in 1 Corinthians, where he says that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. To be baptized into Christ Jesus is not to be baptized alongside him or to be baptized by him, but this is to be baptized into him. This is a personal living communion with the living God himself, with your great God and Savior. And so he asks the question, if you want to continue living in sin, If you want to continue living in that lifestyle that God has delivered you from, don't you understand that now at this point, at this juncture in your life, you have been so personally united to Christ that that shouldn't even be a hint in your life anymore. Don't you get these things? Don't you understand these things? The life is different. Everything has changed. You are now united to Christ in his death through baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So the goal of you being united to Christ right now in this room, the goal of you being united to Christ is so that you should walk in the newness of life. In other words, there is no looking back. Remember, Lot's wife is what Jesus says. She looked back because she wanted to go back to the city that she grew up in. She wanted to go back to the cares of this world. And the Lord said, don't look back. And the plea that Paul has for all of us is stop looking back to sin. Stop looking back to the place that you were delivered out of. Stop. There is no reason to go back. The freedom from sin is a freedom that's a true freedom. You have newness of life is what he says. But then we go into the freedom in, or the living in union with Christ. Verses 5 through 11. He says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, there is that union language. You have been united to him in in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Again, you get the reason for why you have been delivered and set free so that you are no longer a slave. The union that we have with Christ is a real and living union. In fact, the word here for united is an agricultural term where you graft things together so that they would find their new, the newness of their life with the source. In other words, the source and the purpose of your life is no longer this world. 
when you were living for the promotions, when you were living for the approval of everyone else in the room, when you were living to see what everyone else was going to say about you, when you were living for this world and this world alone, there was no life. But now that you have been united to Christ, the old man was crucified with him. You didn't go back in time 2,000 years, and you weren't literally or physically there with Christ, but because He is your representative now, you are now in Him. And the old man, which some people take as the physical body, but that's wrong. It's more than that. It's all that you are. Calvin would say it's the whole mass of you. Because it's not just the physical body, it's the feelings, it's the thoughts, the intentions of the heart that are now changed. That is crucified with Christ. That is put to death. Why? So that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Are you going back and tiptoeing and inching your way to the very thing that God has delivered you from? That is the heart of the matter. Verse 7, he says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. This doesn't mean that we are living in sinless perfection or at some point in our lives we'll reach to the point where we are free from sin. The idea here is that we are no longer slaves. Think about that. The next time that you get on a subway, the next time that you get on a bus, and you look at the bus driver, and you look at the people sitting there in the subway, the next time you get on a plane... The next time you talk with a family member who doesn't know the Lord, any of these people who don't know the Lord, the fact of the matter is, is that there are fundamentally two distinct types of people in this world. There are the people like you who have been brought out of darkness and you are no longer a slave. And then there's everyone else who are slaves. They can't help but do what's according to their nature. They can't help but sin. Everything that they produce in this life, whether it's building a hospital, building a swimming pool, or going to jail for something wrong that they did, everything that they do is producing unrighteousness and sin. And then you respond by saying, but what about me? I sin sometimes. In fact, I sin every day. And we have to repent every day. True, but the intentions of your heart are now being renovated by the work of the Spirit because you have been regenerated in the newness of life. Now God has brought you into conformity to the image of His Son. And so He says, For, the, for He who has died has been freed from sin. Now, verse 8, If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So as sure... As the resurrection is, it is certainly true that now you are able to look sin square in the eye and you can say no by the power of the Spirit. This is not just looking forward to the resurrection of the physical body. That's true. That's in there. But what Paul is getting at right now is sin comes to your door knocks on your door and says, can I come in and have some coffee with you? Can I, can I stay just for a little while? Can I hang out just for the night? And in the past, you said, 
Well, you already live here. This is your home. But now, because you are new in Christ, you can look sin in the eye and you can say, this is not the place for you. And in fact, in Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, verses 12 through 13, he says, Therefore we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the idea is, when sin comes, you are now able to not just say, No thanks, I don't want you in my life. You are to put that sin to death. And how do you put sin to death? The answer is that you use God's word. You present yourself to the Lord as alive to him. But then I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why? For the death that he has died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so... Christ doesn't have to go back to the cross repeatedly to pay for your sins. In fact, his death was sufficient not just to cover all of your sins, past, present, and future, but all those who he is saving and all those he has already saved for an eternity. And so the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. Death had no say whatsoever. Jesus was not fighting internally a battle with sin. He had the likeness of human flesh, but he didn't battle internally with sin the way we do. So how does death have dominion over sin? I mean, over Christ? Well, for a time, he subjected himself to all of the frailties of humanity. He was hungry. He slept, he, t- he was tired, he was thirsty. And ultimately, when we look at the cross, what we find is that there you had the culmination of what death pay or what sin pays out, which is death, and he was there crucified. And after that, not even death can hold our Lord down. And so, death has no dominion over him. And now that he lives... Just like in Hebrews, where it says that he has died once and for all. Now that he lives, he lives specifically to make intercession for you. Before the throne of God forever. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 25. Our union with Christ comes down to verse 11, where he says, Likewise you, he shifts the camera so to speak, and now he's now focusing on you. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves, consider yourselves. This is an accounting term. You are to think in terms black and white. Consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this union with Christ now means that we are no longer under that jurisdiction. It's kind of like when new military rolls into town, deposes the person that was in charge and all of his lieutenants, all of the colonels, all of the generals, all of the soldiers, all of the weapons, and now those are kicked out and there's a new, what we used to say, sheriff is in town. Now there is a new authority. There is no longer the dominion of sin for the believer. 
We can't just say, well, that's just who I am. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but now you have been washed by the blood of Christ. This is how you're supposed to look at yourself. Not just someone who is broken and looking in the mirror and feeling sorry for yourself and making excuses to accommodate all of your sins and to tiptoe back to sin and just say, well, I lose, I, I lose my temper on my spouse or I lose my temper on my kids because that's just who I am. No, Paul is saying that's not who you are. You are not serving sin as master anymore. So who do you serve? He says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Interestingly enough, here throughout the entirety of these 14 verses, you have this talk, this magisterial talk, this talk of of government, the lordship of sin and the dominion that it had over God's people, and over even Christ himself for a time. And now that dominion has been thrown out. In other words, when we were in Adam, the dominion of sin caused guilt. We were guilty before God. We stood as guilty parties before the Lord. And now that we have a new federal head, a new representative, we are in Christ Guiltless. Going back to uh, verse, verse 7, he says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. And in fact, I, I, here I like the translation of the Legacy Standard Bible because this actually gets to the heart of what Paul is saying. It's not just that we have been free from sin, but we are justified from sin. In fact, we are declared righteous in the sight of God from sin. And all of the guilt that was imputed to us through Adam, it's all gone. It's done. And here in the courtroom, of the Lord, of the living God, eventually what Paul will bring us to is not just from the courtroom where we are declared guiltless because of what Christ has done, but he moves us into Romans chapter 8 where now we are brought into the living room of God's family. We live in freedom from sin. We live in union with Christ now. But then finally, we live in service to God, verses 12 through 14. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. What Paul is getting at here at this point This is the summary. This is the the conclusion, the logical conclusion of the first question that he asked. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Therefore, as a result of everything that I've just said, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, 
Looking at this even closer, what you'll find is that this is not him commanding you to not allow sin reign in your body. This is more legal language that Paul is getting at. In fact, this is the way life should be for you. Now that you have been brought into the kingdom of God, now that you've been brought into life, the newness of life in Christ, now that this is the case, there should be no trace or hint of sin in your life. That is the way it should be. Now, on a practical level, again, we return back to the question and we say, well, I sin every day, don't I? Yes, that's true. But there should be a warfare now waged against sin. No accommodations. No tiptoeing towards sin. No making excuses and justifying sins. We kill sin at the door where it stands. And there should be this, uh, to, to use the language of our confession, this irreconcilable warfare against sin. So that we deeply, in our, in our souls, we groan and we say, Lord, there is this sin that I need to kill. There is this sin. I know I'm not at peace with this sin anymore. This is not who I am. Help me to fight sin. And we do that every single day until the day that we go home to be with the Lord. He says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Now, if you're looking at the New King James and probably other translations, you'll probably find a little footnote that says in the bottom that this actual word is the word for weapons. Why does Paul use military language? The New King James doesn't use the military language, but the Greek does. Why is this instruments of unrighteousness to sin? Why do we need to present our members as instruments of righteousness to God? Because this is an irreconcilable war. We can't be passive when it comes to living for the Lord. There is no degree of passivity when it comes to living for Christ. Either you're all in, using all of your body, every part of you, to facilitate righteousness, to glorify God, to magnify God in everything that you do. Or you use your body, your life, everything, all of your thoughts as weapons of warfare. And ultimately what he'll say in chapter 12 is the verse that most people know. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There are no neutral zones when it comes to living for the Lord. Either you're all in or you're not. He says, for sin shall have no dominion over you. Why? For you are not under the law so that you are to meet all of the obligations which you cannot fulfill anyway, but you are now under grace. Grace that makes you look back to your Savior and say, I could not live the life that my Savior lived. I could not satisfy the demands that my Savior has satisfied. I could not put myself as a propitiation, a satisfactory sacrifice for my sins. I couldn't do it. But Christ did. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be mythologized. 
This is why we can't just say he was a good teacher or he was a good prophet. No, he was more than that. Way more than that. The life that Jesus lives now means that you who are united to Christ are free from Adam's sin. Now you are in Christ. You're in a new camp. You're in a new category. You belong to the Lord. Therefore, you are to live in union with Christ. And most people, I dare say, even myself, we take this for granted. We take our union with Christ for granted. When we go to the store, when we pay our bills online, we're not readily thinking that this is to the praise and the glory of the Lord who actually gave us the money to pay for things. When we rear our kids or our children, when we have face-to-face conversation with other people, we don't realize that Christ himself became a man so that he can look people face-to-face without them being incinerated in the holiness, in his holiness. So that you would be brought into fellowship with him. So that God would be reconciled. So that there would be no more warfare between you and God. And now you live in peace. Because Jesus has destroyed the power of sin. Now that you are united to Christ. You are to live in a state of freedom. Because that's where you are. No longer going back to your old habits. That means reevaluating every aspect of life so that now as you think about the intentions of your heart, now as you think about all of the actions that you do, now that as you think about all of your days, you are doing so in the way that is to give God the maximum glory. And not only that, But you're also loving the things that he loves, which includes all of his people. This is why one of the marks of a Christian is that you show love for the people of God. In other words, you inconvenience yourself so that the welfare of your brother and sister would be elevated so that they would grow in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord. Because that's what Jesus did for you. You love the things that he loves. You hate the things that he hates. And this is why Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, would say, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know what pleases God? How do you know what God hates? Well, you go back to where he has revealed himself in his word. And the things that he's revealed to us belong to us and to our children, and to our children's children. And so we go back to his word, and we say, absolutely not. We won't go back, because that's not who we are. Jesus calls you to forsake whatever's standing in the way of communion with him. That literally means you take out your calendars and you look at your schedule, And you say, Lord, am I prioritizing you? And am I I prioritizing the things that you love? That means you plan your vacations with Christ in mind. 
When you go on vacation, you're not taking a vacation from Christ himself. He goes with you. Whatever is standing in the way of communion with him and with the people that he loves so much, the Lord is calling you to forsake those things and to live for him even today. Let's pray.